Well, good morning to you all. I love baptisms. There's nothing that quite brings home the family we have in our church like a baptism. They are just wonderful. So I'm so glad that you can all be here today and join with us for this wonderful ceremony. So, whenever I start to construct a sermon, one of the things in my head is, who will hear this message? You see, I know a lot of you quite well today, but there are some of you that I don't know at all. And there might be somebody who has never been to a church before. So what will they make about my Christianese and theological terms and Greek words? But on the other hand, if I don't use Christianese and theological terms and Greek words, what will someone who is a lifelong churchgoer and mature in their faith take away with them today? Well, the truth is that there's always a mix of young and old, believers, non-believers, and those who are somewhere in between. So that might be you. Perhaps you're baptized and you understand what's happening today very well, or perhaps you are a visitor for some other reason and you've encountered something a bit unusual. And this is why we're going to spend a short time this morning talking about why we baptize and how we baptize and what baptism does and doesn't mean. So, why do we baptize? Well, there's a sign outside that says we're a Baptist church, dummy. And there's this nice warm pool of water just designed for the purpose that I'm going to fall into if I'm not careful. And I bet you'd like to see that. But the principle... I'm so disappointed. <laughs> At least he's honest. <laughs> the principal reason that we baptize is because we are commanded to do so. And that we will find in Matthew 28. Jesus himself says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So obedience to this direct instruction from Jesus is the first and the most important reason we baptize and are baptized. As Christians, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And so if he says that there is something we ought to do, then we must do it. There is no question about whether it is the right thing or the wrong thing. It is the right thing. But I want to hasten to add here, that the reason we obey isn't because of fear of the proverbial lightning bolt from heaven, but we do this because of love. In the book of Romans 5, Paul writes that, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it's very easy to read this text, but to fully understand it and take it to heart is difficult because its truth is so large. You need to know some history to understand this, though. When God created the earth and us, his plan was for us to be friends. And that's what actually happened for a while. We can read in the very beginning of the Bible how it was in the Garden of Eden and how humans started out with a real one-on-one -on -one relationship. with And then it all became very lumpy custard indeed. Because through our own choice, 
we humans deliberately dis disobeyed God's direct instruction. That's a thing called sin, a thing that God absolutely detests. And its consequence was that we cut ourselves off from the loving relationship that he had intended for us. Now you might say, okay, so we weren't friends anymore. Big deal. But this was a lot, a lot, lot worse than that. It wasn't just an angry parting of ways with God in one corner and humans in another. Picture and no sound, as it's sometimes put. The consequences were terrible. Our sin actually made us God's hated enemy and thus the target of his full wrath. He wasn't just going to sit there. He was actively going to come out of that corner and punish us. The creator of all things against the creator of small things. What hope could we possibly have against eternal, omnipotent God? Well, I think it's clear that there are, there are no things we could do at all by our own efforts. But fortunately for us, as much as God's wrath is awesome and terrible, His love is even greater than that, so much so that although we had made Him very angry and didn't deserve us, God's love caused Him to save us. Now, how did He do that? Maybe by conveniently sweeping all our sin under the carpet, perhaps? Pretending it didn't happen? I mean, everybody makes mistakes, isn't that true? Well, let's think about that to, for a bit to see if it could be a real possibility. If it is going to be true that God is the final and absolute standard of right and wrong, then for him to sweep things under the carpet must be impossible. And that's because even if you are 99.9% .9 right, you are still that 0.1% wrong. And a standard just can't work like that. The answer to 1 plus 1 can never be nearly 2. Otherwise, all kinds of things can go really wrong. I mean, imagine you tried to use that logic calculating a trip from here to the moon. Well, by the time you would got there, you'd be, I don't know, Andromeda. It just wouldn't work. But God is completely sure about what is right and what is wrong, and his actions are always absolutely consistent to those standards. There is never, ever the tiniest variation. And the thing is that right and wrong don't just stand there to be admired or feared. They have consequences. If you do right, well, God is 100% for you. If you do wrong, he is 100% against. There is no in-between, no shades of grey. And although that might be a pretty scary idea, it's actually really helpful for us. Why? Well, as everybody knows, the space under a carpet is the very greyest of grey areas. Nothing in the whole world sees the sun or the broom as infrequently. And so for God to place something there in that twilight zone, it would mean that he had either changed his mind about his rightness or wrongness, or perhaps he had been wrong about its status in the first place. And that would make him unsure and indecisive and unstable. Just like us, in fact, and like us, very capable of some nasty things on a random basis. And like us, unfit to run a universe or 
to make guaranteed offers of eternal life. Is that a God you would want to follow? To give your heart to? For all we know, that sort of God might wake up on Monday morning with a hangover and then just decide to blow the whole thing up or torture everybody in it just for sport. But God is very sure about what is right and wrong. And he is always sure about the consequences. The consequence for our sin should have been death, but instead, as this text in Romans says, he sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place, to be punished instead of us. And because Jesus did that, the debt that humans owned God was paid. And this means that everyone who repents of their sins, that means they say sorry to God and promise to try not to do them again, and also makes Jesus Lord of their life from that moment on, will, once again, be able to have that one-on-one relationship with God again. <laughs> Forever. Life instead of death. And we also know that nothing can mess that up again because it has been done perfectly. That is such an amazing thing to do for us when there are so very many of us and we all break God's rules so much and so often. Billions and billions of sins. Your sins, my sins. When you take to heart what a positively gigantic thing the sacrifice was that Jesus made on behalf of teeny tiny little you here in Wanganui you who you know so well to be willful and sinful well you cannot but respond in love and obedience and this is why we baptize in loving submission to our Savior never because we are afraid of him Well, the next question has to do with the why do we believe in dunking rather than splashing? And why is it not done to babies like some other churches? Well, once again, the answer lies in Scripture. The Greek word that we translate today from the original texts as baptize is baptizo. And it always means to plunge or dip or immerse. There's absolutely no question about not having to hold your breath during the experience. And that's our first clue. Then if we examine the times of baptism baptism as mentioned in the New Testament, we can see that the act always goes together with going right into the water. For example, in Mark 1, when Jesus himself is baptized, it is recorded that it was done in the River Jordan, not next to or near it. And furthermore, the Greek text specifies that he came up out of the water. He didn't come away from it. There are lots of other scriptures that paint the same picture, And so that's why we do what we do today. And by the way, there is warm water that goes in there. Sometimes we even turn it on. And sometimes, I'm told, for too long. (laughs) Now, where you is at is also very important. For the elders of this church to consider a person as being ready for baptism, we look for two things. Firstly, that they have made a believable profession of faith, and secondly, they can be seen to be living a life that is consistent with being a Christian. And that is why we refer to this as a believer's baptism. And that's a thing that's quite different to infant baptism, which, if you want to be flash, is properly called pedo-baptism. Pedo is just a prefix that means child. 
And although we may baptize young people here, as we have done today, we will not baptize infants or baptize as a matter of course. There is no set age for a candidate. Each case must be taken on its own merit. Under the guidelines, there must be good evidence of genuine spiritual life. And anyone who is baptized should be able to properly explain what it means to them to trust in Christ. So why do we only baptize believers? Well, of course, once again we turn to Scripture, but because we believe it to be the only source of absolute And there we find a common thread that baptism is intended only for those who have received the gospel and trusted in Christ for salvation. Christians, in other words. If we have a look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, as described in Acts 2, we read, those who received his word were baptized. If we have a look at the order in which things happen there up till then, we can see that there's a very clear timeline. Peter preached the word, which means the gospel, what I've explained to you a little while ago. Then people who were listening were convicted and took its message to heart to trust in Christ for their salvation. And only then were they baptized. So there's an order, isn't there? Hearing, receiving, holding your breath. Similarly, when Philip preached the gospel in Samaria, we read, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And likewise, when Peter preached to the Gentiles in Cornelius' household, he allowed baptism for those who had heard the word and received the Holy Spirit. So that is for those who had given persuasive evidence of an internal work of regeneration. And there are lots of other scriptures, again, that reinforce this doctrine. So by now we've briefly covered why we baptize, how we baptize, and who we baptize, and how these three things are all grounded in scriptural principles, not human ideals. But we haven't talked about what baptism means. I'm going to start off, though, by saying what it does not mean. Church ritual that's carried over from long ago. It has continuous, real purpose and meaning. As I've already explained, it was expressly ordered or ordained by Jesus Himself, and that's why we refer to it as an ordinance. And it's one of only two such ordinances. The other being communion, which was other, was which was also ordered by Jesus. And neither of these things has a use-by date except for the return of Jesus, in other words, the end of the world, after which we expect things to be slightly different. Therefore, until our Lord comes again, baptism is as relevant today as it was when, J when John the Baptist first did the deed, and it is required as much as it was when Jesus first commanded it. Secondly, baptism is not to be confused with membership. Membership in our churches solely a human arrangement that is set in place for the sake of order. Here at Wanganui East, we have what is known as a congregational model of authority. And this means that all major decisions are made by the members of the church getting together, hearing the arguments, and voting at a general meeting. To become a member, to vote there, you must fill in a form and be interviewed by one of the elders to be sure of your suitability for membership. 
And the way that it works out is the day-to-day authority for the running of the church is delegated to the elders as a body. The pastor is an elder. He is not the elder's boss. So if you want to have a formal voice in the affairs of the church, then I strongly encourage you, we need members to apply to become a member. But baptism on its own will not make you a member of this church or any other church for that matter. So now is the time to slip that $100 note into the application form. (laughs) Did I really say that on live stream? (laughs) Thirdly, baptism is not salvation. It is a consequence of and a witness to salvation, but it is always downstream of that event. You are sadly mistaken if you believe that being baptized will get you or anyone a get-out-of-hell-free card. And St. Peter will not even be slightly impressed if you flash your baptism certificate at the pearly gates. Baptism can never make you a member of God's family in the way that being saved does. There is nothing whatsoever that a person can do with their own hands or feet or head that will bring them spiritual salvation no matter how deep the water is or how long they can hold their breath. Let me be very clear. Only Jesus saves. Thirdly, baptism is not necessary for salvation. If you have made a genuine commitment within your heart to follow Jesus as Lord, then you are definitely going to heaven. There's absolutely no question or doubt. Splashing or dunking is irrelevant to that particular gift of God. Romans 10 describes the only guarantee certificate. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now there's nothing in this text about baptism, is there? The key words are confess, believe, and will. Confess and believe, and you will be saved. No ifs or buts. It is obedient to be baptized. It is encouraging to be baptized. It is edifying to be baptized. These things are all true, but on the more important matter of God welcoming you into his kingdom as a son or daughter on the basis of whether Jesus is Lord of your life, baptism has no meaning at all. So now we've discussed what baptism is not. We can move on now to what it is. There are four main reasons we baptize. The first is obedience, and we've talked about that already. The second reason is that it is done to encourage the one baptized. In Colossians 2, Paul writes about the symbolism of baptism. He says that we were buried with him, that's Jesus in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now clearly, no one is literally going to be buried alive here, but there is certainly deep symbolism. When a person goes under the water, it's like going into the grave and being buried, just as Jesus was, and everyone thought he'd stay there. But when they rise from the waters, it is also like Jesus being raised, to a new and surprising life. 
hearing me say that, you might very reasonably ask, why is this symbol at all necessary when I've said that baptism is not salvation or needed for salvation? Well, my belief is that full immersion baptism is a practical expression of God's patience and love and understanding given to us through his grace. He knows that because us humans experience life through our senses, sight and touch and taste so on, that often things aren't real for us unless there is a sign. It's an ancient cry. Lord, give us a sign. Are you really there? Did something really important happen to me? And that's how we often feel in our hearts. But we're generally afraid to mention it in polite Christian company because it's not seen to be very virtuous. Every good Christian knows that wanting a sign simply means you don't have enough faith, my dear. Rubbish! There are no good Christians. There are only sinners saved by grace. Every one of us is the same. and Every one of us has longed for God to speak to us from a burning bush. The Lord knows what is in our hearts. And he loves us and he wants to help and encourage us. So he graciously gives that bush to us in the symbol of baptism. This going under and coming up again is a sign to me and you of how we were once dead in our sins. But now we are risen to life with him through the blood of Jesus. You may have heard the word epiphany. It sounds very flash, but it just means an appearance or becoming manifest. And manifest just means becoming real. But it does carry with it the sense of becoming real in a rather powerful way. So having an epiphany might well be described as having a big-time light bulb moment, just like the cartoons. Aha! That's what it means. The Paul Apostle... The Paul Apostle. Did I... The Apostle Paul had one of those. He had an epiphany on the road to Damascus. Jesus made himself manifest to Paul in a very powerful way, asking from a blinding heavenly light, Saul, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? What do you think that was like? I'm guessing that was a pretty profound experience for Paul. I don't think he would have brushed it off as something unremarkable. Ah, there's another epiphany. Now what's for tea? Like Paul, when we encounter God properly, we are definitely going to notice. We can unquestionably tell that he's no longer somewhere up there. But now, powerfully, he's in here. That's why it's called an epiphany, something so special that it requires a special name. And for many people, the physical experience of believers' baptism by full immersion is an epiphany, a special encounter with God. Now, that doesn't mean that it's absolutely necessary to have some kind of ecstatic experience for your baptism to be authentic. All of us here have different natures and we experience things differently, and so some may find it ecstatic, but some less so. But everyone who goes into the waters of baptism will find that it helps them to grasp this. Christ died for my sin. He then rose to glory and new life with salvation. I die and rise with him. And so it becomes an encouragement for their daily lives. Thirdly, baptism is done for those who watch. 
For those who are already baptized, it reminds them of their own baptismal experience, and so it strengthens their faith. However, for those who believe and are not baptized, they are clearly sinners and they're going straight to hell. No, it's not at all ever like that. But it is a gentle challenge to consider taking the same step of obedience. Now, something you wouldn't know about is why I picked my sermon title. And at last I can let the cat out of the bag. You see, inside my pocket is this light. It's been on the whole time that I've been speaking to you. And it's, at full noise, it's apparently 300 lumens. I didn't switch it onto that because I wasn't really sure it would still be on when I took it out of my pocket. And that would really mess up my illustration. But apparently it's 300 lumens when it's really bright. And that hurts when you look at it. It stings if you get it in the eye. Now here's the thing. Nobody could tell that was in my pocket. And I don't think the inside of my pocket is very impressed by the light. And of course, if I was wandering around in the dark, I'd still bump into things if I kept it there. I have to take it out to see and to be seen. The light of Christ that has been placed in every believer is just like this. Although it is piercingly bright to be of use, it needs to be seen by others, which is the fourth and final purpose of baptism. Baptism is done as a sign to the unbeliever. When we give our evidence in that water, there is no mistaking what we mean. We have stated our case in public, and this is why we ask baptismal candidates to give their testimony. In doing so, those lumens, which is the way we measure the amount of light coming out, they are loosed. They're out in the open, shining brightly for everyone to see. They say that Jesus is Lord and our one hope is his salvation. I pray that he and he alone is your hope too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you have given us this, this ordinance of baptism. It is such a simple thing on the face of it, but so deep when we consider all that it means. Thank you for those reminders and the way that they speak to our heart, the challenges that they make about our daily life. And Lord, I pray that they would not remain merely as challenges, but those challenges would provoke us to reality, to shine out for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.